right, just to throw a little bit of a curveball, we're going to be in the book of Malachi this morning to start. Book of Malachi, if you're trying to figure out where that is, go to the New Testament and then go back one page, the very beginning of the New Testament, and go back, the end of the Old Testament. We're going to start there, and then we're going to go to book of 1 Kings, so you can kind of get your thumb there, and you know the roadmap for the morning. Malachi chapter 4, and then then to the book of 1 Kings. We're in our series, Prophets and Kings. We're working through these uh, uh, working through this story, and this morning we're going to uh, dive into uh, the story of Elijah, and we're going to let that be our kind of paradigm for a few weeks as we work through uh, some of this stuff. I don't know how you guys feel about silence. I don't know if that is something that you practice as a spiritual discipline. I don't know if that's something that uh, is on your radar, or if you are uh, like me a lot of times in the sense that uh, silence can be intimidating. Now, for extroverts, silence can be uh, downright uh, debilitating. For introverts like me, it can be restorative for a time uh, until it's not, uh, and especially if the silence comes at the wrong time in an awkward uh, moment. I can do silence in the day pretty well, but silence at night is a different uh, a different thing. There's something about the, the lack of, of, of noise around me that sets my mind going crazy. So I have to have some sort of noise whenever I'm going to sleep. I've got a fan right here by my face whenever I'm going to sleep so that I can have some noise. Anybody else like that? Like you got to have some sort of noise? All right, so you guys are the ones with the uh, conscience, consciences that are not at, pe- at peace like me. Um, and you need something to distract you, I, I guess. Um, I just need that, that sound at night so that, uh, so that the silence doesn't kind of overwhelm me. Silence can do that at times. It can be deafening. In the book of Malachi, we have the final words of God to his people uh, for a very, very long time. He gives these words, and these words are meant to be words that give hope. These words are meant to be words that kind of uh, draw, uh, draw hope to it, but it, it, it's words that can uh, also, if you read them, see that there's an ominous warning attached. Uh, and so, the, the, like me hearing a sound when I'm trying to go to sleep, these words kind of echo in the, the, the minds of the people of Israel. So here's what I want to do. I want to read these words, and I promise you we'll get, to, we'll get to how this ties in to the book of 1 Kings here in just a minute. Uh, and then we'll see, we'll see what it is that God has to say. So Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that was the final words that God gave to his people for over four centuries. Silence after that. And the silence was deafening. For many Jews today, the silence is still deafening because they wouldn't identify when God spoke again through Jesus. But the words that that God gives are meant to inspire hope here. And the person that he draws from is the prophet Elijah. He promises that one day Elijah the prophet will return, and when he does, he'll be the forerunner to God's coming in the day of the Lord. He will be the one that brings hope for God's people. 
That promise is then followed by silence for centuries, and it leaves the, the careful follower uh, on the, the lookout. If you were here whenever uh, Melissa taught us in the Seder last year, she talked about how at the Seder meal during Passover, there's always a chair left for Elijah in case Elijah decides to show up and be a part of the meal. They're carefully uh, looking for that. Elijah is the bringer of hope, the forerunner of good news. So my question to you is if Elijah carries that kind of weight where he would be the last beacon of hope that God gives to his people for over 400 years, what makes Elijah so special? What is it about Elijah that should kind of inspire hope in us today? What is it that makes him so good? What should compel a group of Americans in Jefferson City in 2022 to spend our mornings studying this guy for the next few weeks? What is it that that compels Malachi to name Elijah as this bringer of hope? What is it about Elijah that outside of David and Moses, Elijah is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament figure? What is it that makes Elijah so special? How does, how does Elijah prompt comparisons between, uh, between Elijah and John the Baptist and Elijah and even Jesus? What is it about him that does that? And what is it about Elijah that can teach us about the nature and the work of the cross? All of those questions, it is my goal to answer over the next few weeks. It's my goal to kind of draw us there as we lead up to Easter to answer all of those questions. And I think you're going to see that Elijah probably has some surprises in store for us. Because his story will serve us in many ways. He'll teach us what it takes to reach the highest of highs in our walk with God. And I assume you want that. I mean, that's an assumption that I put out there. But honestly, I'm assuming that just just based on my hope as a pastor. Because I'll tell you, part of the thing that that you learn as you get to know people and as you get to know a lot of Christians is a lot of people aren't necessarily looking for the highest of highs with God. They're just kind of looking to get through. They're just here, they're here checking their box, they're here doing their thing, they're here just kind of moving along and going through the motions and doing the thing. They're not yearning for that moment with God. But if you are, Elijah's going to show you what that looks like. He will teach us. But just as we'll go to the mountaintop with Elijah, we'll also go to the lowest of lows with Elijah. We'll sit with him in a cave, completely disoriented, confused, and lost. If you've ever struggled with depression, burnout, envy, frustration, suffering, if you've ever felt confused in your walk with God, thinking God was going to show up in one way, only to find out that He doesn't show up that way at all, and it looks very, very different, and that can be very, very disorienting, Elijah can teach us here too. He'll be with us in both of those. So let's start this study of this prophet And we're going to do this by backing up just a little bit. Remember, last week we introduced the book of Kings. We went through the first 16 chapters of the book of Kings. We talked about Solomon's good start, how things were going well, his rapid decline, and the split of the kingdoms uh, on account of this uh, kind of general crisis that Israel had been left in. You know, what's supposed to happen as Solomon takes over is that that, that what God had called David and his descendants to, the, the establishment of Israel under the word of God and the worship of God, that is what's supposed to be happening. It's supposed to look very different than what we've talked about. 
Israel is supposed to look very different, very intentionally different than the other kingdoms around it. They should be on this great progression uh, where they become kind of the ultimate display of God and His glory through His people to all the people around them. It should happen as king after king submits himself to the ultimate king, establishes the kingdom on that basis, and defers all power to God, to Yahweh Himself, recognizing that as king their power only exists because of the nature and the presence of God. A strength that is couched in a humility. That's what we should get in the book of Kings. But instead, what we get is a bunch of power-hungry, short-sighted politicians that play the role of king and completely forget their role as a servant to God's kingdom. They start to assume that they are great because uh, of their position, and they begin to establish things that seem politically expedient and power-enriching, and in doing so, they walk away from Yahweh. So that's the stage, right? That's where we're at. And it can be really easy to say the history of ancient Israel doesn't apply to us today. But I promise you, you're going to see where it does. Because this sets up a dynamic in the, the rest of the book of Kings and the history of Israel where we see a prophet versus a king. It sets up this battle that continues and that, that will go over and over and over. We didn't look at it closely last week, but if you follow in, uh, in the first 16 chapters, what you see is this dynamic where a king comes and then a prophet rises to meet the king. And the prophet will come and say, you're not going to do this this way. The king will say, oh yeah, watch me. And then he'll go on and he'll do it anyway. And so you have this battle, prophet versus king, prophet versus king, prophet versus king. It happens over and over and over again. And what we saw last week is that as, uh, as the, the kingdom split, you have these two kings that uh, take over in the northern kingdom. You have uh, Jeroboam in the southern kingdom. You have Rehoboam. So these people that you probably, uh, that, that are uh, kind of these, these Old Testament figures that start taking Israel even further away from where God has called them. In the northern kingdom, Jeroboam even goes as far as setting up uh, multiple temples, two of the main temples with golden calves in them for the, for the, the people of Israel to worship. It's kind of crazy how obvious it is. Like the, the parallels are, are almost explicit in there between Exodus and the book of Kings. It's mind-blowing. And all the while, the prophets are coming to this king saying, you do not want to do this. You do not want to do You really don't want to do this. God says, don't do this. I'm pleading with you, don't do this. The parallels between Moses and Pharaoh are striking. And it sets up this dynamic where the king will do his thing, regularly forgetting God in the process, if not outright denying and rebelling against God, and a prophet will call him out. This is the dynamic we're getting ready to see. So, so what happens is now when we get to look at Elijah, the story kind of slows down. So we've been looking at kind of the big picture of this. And then when we get to Elijah, the story slows down. And it's almost like the author says, let me just show you this one case here to show you how this plays out in detail over and over again. And so in theory, a prophet's job is to speak God's word. He's to speak God's word, and the king's job is to uphold and carry out God's word. That's how it's supposed to work. 
What we see in this book, in the book of Kings, is this endless succession of kings that seem to carry out uh, their own word and this endless string of prophets that rise up to challenge them and call them out for it. And so they choose just these couple of kings here and a couple of prophets that we're going to dial in on, and we're going to start by looking at Elijah. But before I talk about Elijah, we've got to look at the king that, would be, that will be his foil, that will be the one that he rises to meet. We're going to look at King Ahab. All right? So let's look. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 to 33 here. Let's meet King Ahab, the foil and the enemy, the, 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 the counter to Elijah here. So 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That is not a great introduction if you're in the Bible. That's not how you want to be introduced and to be uh, thrown out here. Ahab was quite literally as bad as it gets. He was worse than all the ones before him. It was no big deal for him to repeat the sins of the kings that came before him. He marries Jezebel, who often gets credit for kind of steering Ahab's heart to the worship of Baal. But here's the thing. There's a good chance that he chose her because he was already worshiping Baal, and he only wanted to kind of supercharge that and increase that. There's, there's a good chance that she wasn't just the king's daughter, so this would be a, a political marriage that would be arranged, but she was probably, this isn't for sure, but probably a priestess within the worship of Baal. So he chose her specifically because she could bring the god Baal to the people of Israel and set up the worship there. So this is like, I'm telling you, this is dialed in on this worship. This is not like an incidental thing and he drifted away like we saw with Solomon. This is a guy who's making an intentional choice and bringing on uh, the top recruit from another religion to say, you come and set this up because I think this will be good for us. Essentially, he sought her out because he knew she could help lead in this area of worshiping these false gods. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about Baal here in a few minutes and a lot more here uh, in a couple of weeks. Honestly, you, you'll hear me say that a lot in this sermon where we'll, we'll talk about a few more things later on as we, as we go on because we're just kind of setting the stage this morning, but it's an important one for us to look at and to see. So you have this king that's worshiping other gods, marrying a wife that will only deepen that sin. And Ahab's gotten God's attention with all of it. Enter our man, Elijah. Elijah shows up on the scene. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
Now that sentence, that, that, that verse right there is literally all we know about Elijah up to this point. That's it. There's not other mentions of Elijah before this. He just shows up out of nowhere on the scene as the prophet to confront Ahab. He's Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. And of course, you guys know the story of the famous city Tishbe in the Old Testament and how that's this great... Pro- no, I'm just kidding. It's the only time Tishbe's mentioned in the Old Testament. Right here. This is it. Tishbe is nowhere else. There's no other Tishbites. This is it. You don't know that story because it's not in there. This is all that there is, which I think is the point. Elijah is literally a nobody from nowhere that has nothing when he shows up. He is a nobody, but he shows up with a message for the king. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, here's the thing about this prophecy that he lays out there. We're also not really sure how Elijah came to uh, take hold of this prophecy. It doesn't tell us. Any, anything that we say is a bit of an assumption. How did he come to this information that the rain was going to stop and there would be a drought? Did he just guess? Was he a good weatherman? Did, was he ahead of his time for meteorology during that time? Did God tell him? Did he uh, think he was in control of the weather and he could just decide when it was going to rain and when it was not? Did he know he was a prophet? If so, how did, how did he know? Or did he just kind of go out on a limb and make this statement to Ahab? Was he simply a student of the Bible and was applying God's word to the situation? We're not sure. Hey, here's the thing. Look, if you, if you want to turn, you can. It should come up here. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16. This is what it says there. It says, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Sounds a lot like what Ahab has done here. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So maybe Elijah was just a student of the Bible. Maybe he just knew his Torah well. And he just shows up and he says, this is what God says, and now I'm just going to say it to you. God says it in Deuteronomy, and now I'm just going to say, God, do what you said you would do. We're not really sure how he came to take hold of this word of God. If it's because he studied the Torah or if it's because God came to him and said, here is this. But here's what we do know and we can be sure of. He had absolute confidence in this word. Absolute confidence that God would do what he said he would do. Whether he's applying the words of Deuteronomy 11 or he's applying the words that God brought to him. Elijah completely trusted God on this one. This was not a theoretical trust. This was not a like kind of mental ascent. Yeah, I trust God, but I'm going to, you know, like go here and, and do this stuff and kind of hedge my bets. And all. None, none of that. He gave it all. He said, I'm going to trust this. This was not theoretical. You know, the kind of trust that you and I tend to have. I mean, let's just be honest. For the most part, our trust in God and God's word can tend toward the, the, the theory, like in theory, we trust what God has to say, where we say we believe the Bible, but then we, we walk around in fear and worry about our money and our lives, all the while knowing that God said he had control of all of it, and yet we try to take hold of it and control it all ourselves. 
So we say, yes, we trust you, but in reality and in practice, it doesn't always look like that. For Elijah, it looked like that. He said, God, you said it, and now I'm going to trust it. And so we say we believe the Bible, but do we? Do we trust God? Do we trust him like Elijah trusts him? Do you trust God like Elijah trusts God here? Can you walk into a situation and say, this is risky. This is probably going to be painful. This is probably going to cost me a lot. It's definitely scary. But that's okay because this is what God has said. And I will trust him. Elijah didn't hedge his bets. He didn't have a fallback career. He didn't have any kind of like, well, in case this doesn't work out, I've, I've, got, my, I've got my carpentry that I can go back to or I've got whatever. He was putting it all on the line. Because here's the thing, you show up with a prophecy like that in front of the king, either he's going to listen or you're going to be in real danger. One of the two. But if that's the message God's given you, you have to trust it. You have to be completely committed. This picture showed up on my, uh, on my news feed this week. I don't know if y'all have seen this picture or not. Um, there's a lot of things I love about this picture, but uh, maybe this is just the way my mind works whenever I'm, I'm working on a sermon, but everything ties back to the sermon in my head uh, somehow. And so, uh, now it's not a perfect analogy, but, but, but hang with me. Do, do you know how fast that bike has to be going to clear that many kids? Now listen, I have, I have, I have ramped a, a, a bike in my day. I have done that. And I'm lucky if I can get both wheels off the ground for like a full second, let alone long enough. Like usually it would be like front wheel goes down and you immediately take the nosedive, right? So there's some serious speed that has to be committed to in order for this thing uh, to work, enough to where I'm surprised the center block actually held the ramp uh, that, that is there. Um, it, it takes a full commitment in order for this to be to happen. That kid had to be booking it. If he was, if he hesitates at all, if he hedges, if he doesn't fully commit, kids three and or four and five on the end are headed to the hospital. Right? Like if he doesn't fully commit to that, that that's how it is. It's the same for Elijah. If he hedges on what God has said, he can't make the statement that he makes. He can't step forward. He can't back it up. He doesn't have the power to stop the rain. Only God does. Side note on this picture. There's two things that are my favorite thing about this picture. Nothing to do with the sermon. But there's two things that are, that are my favorite. First, you've got the two girls that are praying. Um, I think that, that, that that's great. And the, the main thing is, there's an adult back there <laughs> that gave full approval to all of this. Just sat there and it's like, yeah, go for it. See what happens. Um, I, I don't know. Anyways, um, but, but the point is you've got to be committed. You've got to be fully committed to this. And Elijah commits full on. He does not hedge at all. In the moment, he could be beheaded. He could be exiled. He could be imprisoned. All of those were on the table and very likely could have been. There's always the chance that things could go wrong, that God could not come through, Right? This is, this is where you and I live a lot. And I wonder how much Elijah lived there too. You know, the, the, the place where you and I live a lot is, is you know what? We're, we're, in, we're, we're, we're fully on, like, like giving everything to it. But, but what if God doesn't come through like, like I thought he was going to? What, what if he doesn't show up the way I hoped that he would? 
Now, we know the story, and we can follow the rest of the story. We know Elijah is going to head on, and we'll see the rest of the story. But in that moment, we have to ask the question, is God going to come through? And so I wonder, do you trust God's word like that? Where you just say, I'm here. I'm going to lay it all on the line, full speed. Or do you hesitate? Do you kind of waffle just a little bit like, okay, this is a little too fast, and if things go wrong, I'm going to go, this is going to go really, really bad. And I'll be honest, I had a whole list of ways that I could, I could talk about the ways that we do this, that we kind of hedge, and the way that we kind of don't put ourselves fully out there. But I honestly think the Holy Spirit can do His job just fine on this one. And I'll just simply ask you the question, where are you holding back? What are you holding on to? What are you most afraid of? What are you putting your trust in? Not, not, not theoretically, but practically. Where is it that you've placed your trust? What makes you nervous? What makes you panicked? What scares you? What puts you at ease? Those are all questions to ask, to kind of test your heart on this one. And find out just how committed you are. You start asking those questions and you find out real quick how much you and Elijah have in common. Friends, be like Elijah. Put it all on the line. I'm going to say this again. Y'all have heard, if you've been at Providence for any amount of time, you've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it again. It's one of the things that I want you like, to know, hey, this is something that the pastor wants us to know. This is it. Do not be balanced people. Don't be balanced people. Do not buy the lie that, 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 that the world throws out there and that the church throws out there a lot. That we're just trying to find a balance between you know, work and life, between marriage and, and whatever. We're just trying to find that work-life balance. We're just trying to find that, 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 that balance. Don't be balanced people. I've been watching the, Olympian, the, the Olympics for the last couple of weeks. Olympians are not balanced people. Balanced people don't become Olympians. Balanced people become accountants. And they become like, like, like normal people. They become normal people. They don't become Olympians. Right? Olympians become Olympians because they, they, they sell everything for it. Their relationships, their, their careers, their friends, their food, their sleep. It all goes on the line for them to become Olympians. It's the only way. It's the only way. So it is for us. God does not call us to be balanced people. Stop trying to find balance in life. Be like Elijah. No backup plans. Full on. Give it all over to him and say, you do what you will. I'm going to follow you. I am following you. Now, let's see what it is that Elijah lays out for his prophecy. And he delivers for Ahab. So 1 Kings 17.1, let's read it again. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, uh, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he makes this prophecy. I'll be honest with you. Uh, this morning, whenever I showed up, I had a whole, a whole nother like 20 minutes to go here for a sermon. I had all kinds of other stuff that I was going to say and that I'm going to talk about, but I'm just going to punt on that and I'm going to put it to 
next week. I, I've, I've rewritten kind of the end of how I want this sermon to go because I feel like this is what God has laid on my heart for us. And maybe it's just for one of you in here. Maybe it's for all of you. But I think this is uh, important for us to see. All right. This is not a random prophecy that that uh, Elijah throws out there. It is a direct challenge to Ahab and to the gods that Ahab has put in control. This Baal, whenever it talks about Baal, that's really kind of like a generic title for all kinds of different gods, but specifically this Baal that, that has been uh, kind of established as the, 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 the main one to worship within Israel, this will become, uh, and, and I, we'll see this really clear when we get to the mountaintop with Elijah here in a couple of, just, of, uh, here in a couple of weeks, but this Baal controls the rain. That was the idea, is that they worship him because he controls the rain. He controls the growth of the crops. He controls all of that. So whenever Elijah comes up and he says, it's not going to rain for three years, this is not just, hey, here's a punishment that's going to come on you. This is, uh, hey, your God is not in control of this, Yahweh is. And so he's drawing very clear battle lines here. He is saying, you don't get to decide what this looks like, and your worship doesn't actually have anything to do with whether it rains or not, because Baal has no control over that. He has no power. He's effectively walking up to Ahab and saying, you know those false gods that you've set up? You know the, the one that controls the rain and the one that you've set up worship for all over Israel? Yeah, he doesn't even exist. He's nothing. In fact, I declare that there will be no rain until I say so. And I dare your God to stop me. And here's the thing. He can't because he's not really there. And we'll see just how weak and impotent your God is that you serve. Again, this is striking in its similarity from Moses to Pharaoh. Moses walking into Pharaoh saying, here, the, these plagues are coming. This is all going to happen. God is going to show you through these plagues how weak your gods are, Egypt. How long is it going to take you to listen? Elijah does the same thing. The battle is set. The terms of engagement are clear as day. You say that your God is great. You say that your God is powerful. You say that your God can do all these things? I don't think he can. Let's see if he'll deliver. We're going to stop the rain for three years. Let's see if, he can, let's see if he, can, he can challenge that. If it rains, then so be it. Your God, your Baal, delivers on the promise. But I don't think he will. We'll see. We'll see the dramatic way this plays out in the story that so many of us know about Elijah. But this morning, simply want to ask you a question. And honestly, this is going to be it. I got, I, got, I got no more here. But this is where I want us to kind of sit just a little bit this morning. This is where I want us to think just a little bit here. We'll see how this plays out. But this morning, I want to ask you, when was the last time you declared war over the idols of your heart? Because what I have found in my own walk and what I have found whenever I talk with others and whenever I just, just observe life is that most of, us, most of us give harbor to the idols of our heart. We protect them. We set them up in ways where we excuse them. 
We set them up in ways where we say, you know what? These are the things that I love. These are the things that, that draw me in. These are the things that, that really give me comfort. They're apart from God. These are the things that, that I want the most, but I have good reason to want all these things. And so we, we, we harbor them, we protect them, and we set them up instead of declaring war on them like Elijah does. This is the task of a Christian. This is the daily task of the Christian. To go to these things that have our hearts and not, ju- not just simply say, you have no power here, which is part of what Elijah says. But I, what I think is so audacious about what Elijah does is something I've thought about a lot this week. What I think is so audacious is he goes to Ahab and he goes to, to Baal, and he says, you're real? If you think you're real? If you think these gods are real, Ahab? Baal, if you are real, then just deliver what you've promised. You're in control of the rain, right? Then deliver. Make it happen. You say that, that you'll do this. Now make it happen. And here's what the idols of our heart promise. They promise that they will make us happy. They promise that they will make us content. They promise that they will fill something in us that is missing. They promise all of these things. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. Go to those idols of your heart and say, do it then. Deliver on your promise. Make me happy. Make me satisfied. Make me content. And then do it again and again and again and keep doing it because that's what you promised. But if you live long enough, if you demand that they deliver on that promise enough, what you will find is that all of these are hollow, empty promises that our idols can never deliver on. And that's why we make excuses for them. And that's why we defend them. We say, well, 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 if I just had a little bit more, okay, I got this. If I just had a little bit more of it, okay, I got that money that I thought that I needed. I just need a little bit more. I got that security that I needed. I just need a little bit more. I got that relationship that I needed. I just need that relationship to be like this. I just need a little bit more. And it's always that, like, if I just had a little bit more, then I would get that contentment. Then I would get that thing that I've been looking for. Then I would be satisfied. And I'm just telling you, go like Elijah and say, no, you deliver it now. And what you'll find is the idols can never deliver. All they can do is manipulate a moment and then always leave us wanting more. I'm not even asking you to declare war this morning. Just kind of draw the battle line. We'll talk about what it looks like to go to war with our idols in a few weeks. This morning, I'm just asking you to be honest with yourself and with your struggles and with the things that you really want. Go to them and say, if you're so good, then deliver on what you promise. And I guarantee you, if you pay attention, instead of continuing to chase them all over the place, you'll see they come up short. And yet this is the promise that God gives us in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. 
God says, test me on my promise. Come taste and see. And what you will find is that not only will I deliver, I am good. And you will hear and you will taste and you will be satisfied. God's not afraid of the same challenge. Put him to the test in the same way that you put the other gods to the test and see who delivers. Now, what does tasting look like? What does it look like to taste and see? I think it looks a lot like what Elijah has done here. Simply accepting God at his word. Simply trusting in that word. It looks like walking up to your false gods and their false promises and watching how powerless they are to deliver. And then walking up to God and saying, I trust you to deliver, and then watching him deliver time and time again. Now, whenever this happens, there's going to be all kinds of things that are going to come with this. You're going to have to see what it looks like whenever you put God to the test. And I don't mean to the test as in like, hey, I'm skeptical that you can deliver. But instead you go and you say, God, I'm going to trust that you are going to deliver. What you're going to see is how God sustains. That's next week. You'll see how God sustains whenever, he, whenever you do this and whenever you trust in him. You'll see how it doesn't look like probably what you would want it to look like, but he will deliver and he will sustain. You'll see what happens whenever you move from just saying, okay, deliver, and then when you realize they can't deliver, you declare war on those idols. You'll see all of that. But this morning, I just want to set the stage for you, and I just want to ask the question, when was the last time that you truly said, I'm going to commit it all to you, God, and I'm going to be completely given over, fully committed, no hesitation, I'm going to trust your word, and I'm going to analyze these idols in my heart. And I'm going to say, when's the last time you did anything for me? And only you can answer that question. Only you can decide what those are in your heart. Like I said, I had a whole list of things I wanted to throw out there, but I'm just going to, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit just kind of apply that and write that for you. But where is it that you need to do that this morning? Maybe for some of you, you've never taken that kind of inventory. Maybe you're not a person who has sat down and said, God, reveal these idols to me. Where are the things that distract me from you? Where are the things that cause me to waver in your word? That is what your week should be this week. For others of you, maybe you know what those idols are. You know what those, are, those things are, those asherahs. It talks about asherahs, which is kind of like the place where they worship. You know where you keep going back. You know the things that you run to whenever you're scared. And it's not God. It's not His Word. It's these other things. Identify that. Say it. Talk to others about it. This is great work for your discipleship group to say, hey, here's where I run whenever I'm worried about things. Here's where I go. Here's the things I trust in the most. And I just want to challenge you. Let, let Elijah's work here be the work that you do fully committed fully trusting and drawing the battle lines in your life i just fear that too many of us are going through life without being ready to go to battle and just kind of accepting that this is who we are and this is what we are and this is what we do and this is what it looks like and this is what life is going to look like for me 
I mean, if you can tell, I, I had a lot more, but I'm camping out on this because I want you to, to hear kind of my angst over this. I just think we're on autopilot. I just think that it's too easy for us to just kind of keep on going and just accept that this is who we are and this is what we do. And we couch it in this language of, oh, this is just something I struggle with, and I struggle with, and I struggle with. And what I'm telling you is there's a place for struggle in the Christian life. Absolutely. There is a place for that. There's a place where you wrestle with things. But there is a time where you have to say, this is not just something I struggle with. This is something that I need to draw some battle lines over. And I need to figure out how to fight through this. I just don't want us to be a people that just kind of go through life. They just kind of go through doing our thing. I want us to be a people like Elijah that are fully committed, given to his word, and trust him with all we are. So this week, I just wonder what that will look like for you. What's that conversation in your own head look like? What's that conversation look like with, with your friends, with your spouse? that conversation even look like with your kids where do you go where do you think through that and be resolved that you will be like elijah fully committed and ready to go to war committed and trusting in the word of god will you pray with me father this morning as we come and we talk about elijah and we we kind of lean on the, the the words of elijah i pray that you would open our our eyes and our hearts to uh, the ways in which we have served and we have worshipped other false gods. Father, I pray this morning that our faith and our trust would not be in, uh, in, in, in these other things that have been laid out there, but instead that you would open our eyes and help, help us to trust in your word and to trust in the work and the, 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 what Christ has done on the cross for us. Father, help us to see the ways in which we have been distracted. Pull us out of the, the, the mire of just kind of going through life and falling into a routine and a rut. And Father, I pray for the, that spirit of Elijah to kind of reign within our hearts this week. Where we would hear you and we would hear your word clearly come to us and say say to us show up you false gods deliver on your false promises and that we would trust in you instead may that spirit of confrontation be in our own hearts this week help us not to run from it to back down from it, to be scared of it, but instead to be ready to go to battle. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.